Don't be bashful. I heard, oh, there you go. Eat less, move more, like move locations, change houses, or like exercise? <laughs> exercise, okay, move, move, gotcha. That's good, that's good. Anybody, yes? Too busy, slow down. Too busy, slow down. All right, good job, good New Year's resolution to slow down. Anybody else? Personal, face to what's what kind of what's that? No, <laughs> personal. <laughs> right, right. That's good. That's good. Um, one more. Oh, spend more time with his kids, and that wasn't even mine, but that's good. I did have a few. Um, I want to be more fit. I want to finish my elusive theology degree. I want to run a half Ironman. I want to be the world's greatest dad. I want to win the best husband of the year award award, be voted best pastor, and I want God's power to like clearly be seen in me in 2012. So just a few things that I really like, superstar for Jesus. Um, but if you think about this, this resolution thing, like why do we like it so much? I mean, when we think about this idea of change, uh, we, over the Christmas, New Year's kind of break, I put out on our news and notes the spiritual inventory that we did last year, updated that, asked you, encouraged you, challenged you to go through that. And the fir- one of the first questions was when you look in the mirror, as you can see we have a few around the room, when you look in the mirror, do you like what you see? Like, are you content with who you're becoming? Now I think if a lot of us looked at our heart of hearts, I think many of us would say no. You know, deep down, there's stuff I would change. I don't love who I am. Because I don't think I'm okay. Isn't that what we're taught? We need to do better. We need to improve. I mean, if we're in America, being average is not okay. We need to be above average. If you ever talk to someone about their kids, they will always say they're above average. Um, But we need to be excellent. We need to do well in school. We need to even, I would say, be almost perfect. And therein lies this subtle lie that we have from, I believe, from Satan, that we have to be picture perfect. In John 8, 44, Jesus is talking to some of the Pharisees, some of the religious teachers, and he talks to them and he says, you people, your father is the devil. And he says this in John 8, 44, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. He always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he is consistent with his character. Or maybe your, your translation says, he's speaking in his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus again says in John 10.10 that Jesus' purpose is to give life to the full, but the thief's purpose, Satan's purpose, is to steal and kill and destroy. And as we start this new series called Identity Theft, that's what we're talking about, not the stealing, killing, and destroying part. Well, the stealing part, it's, it's it's a series about truth, or maybe truth about lies. It's these lies that we believe, that we tell ourselves, and if we, if we let them take hold in our lives, they cause enormous damage. 
They're lies that keep us from finding our real identity. And if we have our identity and we believe them, they're lies that steal our identity. And so with that, as we start, let's pray. Father God, as we begin this new year and we look to maybe new resolutions or a fresh start, I pray that we wouldn't look beyond you. Pray that we'd hear your words that says your mercies are new every morning. And God, just as they're new this morning, I pray that we would come to you open. Pray that we'd come to you to listen. I pray that we'd come to you believing that you are the way and the truth and the life. That you offer this full life. But we have a skewed definition of what that means and I pray that we'd look at these lies and that as we do, Holy Spirit, that that you would teach us what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. That's where the first lie is. It's this lie that we believe we have to be perfect. We have to have it all together. We have to work harder. We have to perform better. We have to produce more. If it's going to be, it's up to me. We need to look good. We need to dress nice. We need to be strong because we don't ever want to share our weakness because weakness isn't okay. In fact, we really, really should be smart. And, and, you know, if you have to use interpersonal communication in your job, which is a lot of us, some of us in, like, larger settings than others, but really, if you do, you need to be smooth and articulate. You need to, you need to expound on what you know in a way that people can clearly access and understand. Um, if you watch just probably one episode of The Bachelor, um, you'll see that we're pretty... As a society, we, we care about looking good, living large, and, and you know what? If, if you have a smooth, trouble-free life, that must mean that you're blessed by God. So I had three or four conversations this week with people who, who said, like, I, I really, like, I just want to be known. I want to I find out who I am, and I want to live into that, and I want to make a difference in the world. I want people to know. I want people to notice. I, I, want, I don't want to get caught up in the trap of accomplishments, but I do want to accomplish something. And if you think about kind of what, what our society, what our world tells us, isn't it? That like, for example, if you're a kid, you need to be a great student, and you need to be obedient to your parents, and you need to be a good friend. And if you're a teenager, then you need to be a great student. And you need to be obedient to the many bosses in your life, if you think about it. There's parents, coaches, teachers, employers, and many more. And, and you should figure out who you are. And if you're in college, then, then you need to be a great student. You need to be an adult. Stop acting like a child. Start being an adult. Um, you need to figure out who you are and live into that. You need to make healthy choices. You need to kind of live as one person rather than like you're this person over here and you're this person over here and you're this person over here. You need to find, um, find time for your friends, learn from their mistakes so you stop making your own, but for sure if you make them, learn from your mistakes. You need to make time for God, but not only just make time for God, really you should, if you know God, you should be finding somebody else to help them make time for God. And and figure out how to, how to get paid for something that you know or you can do. 
So just a small list in in college. Um, But if you're an adult, then you need to find a job. You need to keep a job. I was reading the Star Tribune this week, and um, in 2012, in their New Year's resolution section, it said, keep your job. Might be harder than you think. And so it's good to keep your job. Uh, But if you have a job, then you want to be a productive employee. And and you want to make healthy choices. And you want to live as one person, and you want to find friends that you can last a lifetime for. Maybe you want to find a spouse that you can share your life with, and you want to make God kind of Lord of everything. So just a a small list for being an adult. And if you're a parent, you want to be a good one. Um, That means probably yelling less, being more patient, um, not forgetting about your spouse, uh, being a productive employee so you can provide for your family, and not scrub your kids. So just, just a few things that we kind of set as this expectation of what it means to be an ideal person. And we fall into these traps of perfection. Um, more generally, they kind of fall into some categories, I think. Maybe we find um, that we're seeking spiritual perfection. Um, maybe you're one of the few Christ followers in your family. I was talking to a, a gal two weeks ago, and that was her deal. She was, she's like, I just feel like I have to carry the weight for my family spiritually. Like, I have to, I have to pray the right prayers, and I have a lot of people that, that I love that don't love Jesus, and, and I need to show them what it means to love Jesus, and I need to say the right things, and I need to pray the right prayers, and, and I, it's just hard to, to do that. Maybe spiritual perfection means that you're one of the few people that know Jesus in your job. And so you have a lot of people who look at you who know that you're a Christian, and they're looking to see if you're going to mess up. And you're trying to live this life out, and, and you know there's a lot of pressure there. Um, maybe your perfection doesn't really go into this realm of spirituality, but maybe it goes into this realm of, of professional perfection. Like, you've got a job that you hate, but, and you work with crazy people, but you just feel like you've got to keep that job because it's expected of you, because you want to you wanna do this job, to endure this job, because that's what you do. You, you stay in it, even if you don't like it. There's other people that would say, well, no, that's not really my thing. I, I like my job. I just feel like I have to carry all the weight of the job. Like, if, it, if I don't do it, it's not going to happen. And, and this isn't about ranking jobs, but let's say you're an insurance agent and you misquote the insurance. There's a good chance that, although you'll probably lose that business, that, that you'll recover. But if you're a surgeon and you have a bad day, somebody could die. That's a lot of professional pressure. Maybe your, your perfection is more in this realm of emotional perfection. Not spiritual, not professional, but really this area of emotion. Maybe you might even know someone who's emotionally weak. Um, it's a nice way of saying they're high maintenance or they're oppositionally defiant, or they're always, always, always emotional, always sensitive, and you feel like you always need to be there for them. Now, maybe if you looked at yourself, you'd go, well, actually, that's me. <laughs> um, and you, you hate it, and you're trying to kind of get control of your emotions, and 
you're trying to become emotionally mature, but you just lose it, or you get angry when, when things don't quite go your way when you're with the people that are closest to you. And there's this whole other side of emotional pers- perfection that isn't about being high maintenance. It's really like, I just don't show emotion because showing emotion is weak. And so I don't want to um, be vulnerable because you know what? Honestly, if, if you were to ask me in the quiet corner of my life, if I was vulnerable, I just feel like I have to hold it all together. Like I'm carrying the emotional weight of our family or I have to be emotionally strong for someone else, whether that's a spouse or whether that's kids or whether that's parents. And, and if you think about military spouses, they, they must have a sense of feeling this. You know, like, I can't let my guard down because I have to be strong because my spouse is deployed. I cannot just, I can't even break into this weakness at all because I don't know what will happen. And finally, I think some of us feel this pressure of being provisionally perfect. And what I mean by provisionally perfect is, you know, those day-to-day things that you have to do in your life, like, uh, you know, somebody's got to run that house. And in, if, especially if you live alone, then you know that somebody is probably you. And, and I got to keep everything in order and I got to keep food on the table. And I got to, if I'm in, if I'm in the diapers changing phase, I got to keep changing those diapers. Cause you know what? They keep getting dirty. And, and I got to keep the dishes going because they just, the dishes keep piling up and they keep piling up and they keep piling up and I got to get that done. And I got to ha- get the laundry done because people need clean underwear. And and all kinds of jobs, and then when it's summer, I got to get the yard done because I got to look nice because I don't want my neighbors to think that I don't have a, that I don't take care of my yard. And and then financially, oh, that's a whole other story because I got like I got to go online now and I got to make sure that there's money in my account and I should do a better job budgeting. And and I might even go back to just old school balancing my checkbook. And how am I supposed to do this and pay my way through school? Or if you're not in that phase and you're in a different phase and you're like, okay, wait, and I'm a parent and I'm going to pay for now braces and they cost how much now? And, and cars and college and, and I, I have this unbelievable provisional perfection that is just this weight and I don't think I can do it. And if that's where you're at in any one of those categories today, hear this. Satan would love you to believe that that's right. You can't. You can't do it. You can try, but you will fail. You should just walk out of here defeated because God isn't going to show up because you've messed up too many times in your life. Like he wants to steal and kill and destroy. But maybe... You want to go out of here victorious. Maybe you want to go out of here really realizing that God's power is with you. That it will actually shine through your life. I mean, that's desperately what I want. So as we go to the word today, I want to look at this guy, Paul. So if you have your Bible, you want to go to 2 Corinthians 11. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the back and you can use it. And if you ask, because you don't have one, you could probably even take it. Um, In 2 Corinthians 11, as you're turning there, it's kind of in the back. Um, Paul's this guy who wrote a majority of the New Testament. Um, Many different letters, many of which we have, but some of which we don't have. Um, 
he was the pro-persecutor of Jesus, then turned like super follower of Jesus. Uh, he had some amazing victories in his life. There, I mean, God's power showed up. There was this one time where he went into town to preach about Jesus, to tell about Jesus, and he got stoned to death. Like, literally, his body was dragged out of town, laid there, and the Jesus people came around him, surrounded him, prayed for him, and he got up bloody and beaten. And you know what he did? He marched right back into town. I mean, that's God's power showing up. There's another time where, where his teaching about Jesus instigated a riot that went for two hours, and it was so uncontrollable, they had to smuggle Paul out of the city. Like, that's God's power showing up. That's what's cool. That's the kind of things that I want to see. Don't talk about this defeat. Don't talk about this perfection. That's, that's what I want to talk. Let's talk more about that. Only problem is Paul had a lot of hardship, too. If you go to chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians and start in verse 22, you'll see that he talks about being put in prison. He talks about, he can't even remember the number of times that he was whipped. In fact, he says, I almost died. I've been exposed to death again and again. Then he was flogged, which is not quite whipping. It's even actually more excruciating than whipping. He was flogged the maximum allowable because 40 times would lead to death, so they just gave him 39. That happened to him five times. This isn't exactly the smooth life that we were just talking about that, that seems like in America we want. If that's not all, he continues and he says that I was beaten with rods three times. I've been shipwrecked three times. I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea, which I have to believe is probably one of my worst nightmares. Like just floating, probably from watching Jaws at 10 years old. But like he's drifting out at sea. It says he's faced dangers from rivers. I'm assuming that means like natural disasters. And from robbers, that means thieves. He's faced dangers from so-called friends, Jews, and enemies, he calls the Gentiles, he's faced dangers in cities, in deserts, and on seas, which is pretty much everywhere he's been. He's gone without clothing, without shelter, without sleep, without food, and without water for days. Now, does it seem like God's power is showing up in his life with all of these hardships happening? See, Second Corinthians would assume there's a first Corinthians. Paul actually wrote several letters to these people in Corinth. And Corinth is in Greece. It's not too far from Athens. And Corinth has been like in an 80-year boom when Paul writes this letter. Like, it has more in common with uh, the upper class of Los Angeles than it probably does with you and me. Um, and these people in Corinth they don't really like what Paul is saying to them. They are tr there's some false teachers, some other people that have come in, and they're trying to influence the people, this church, to say, you know what, Paul's not even a real apostle. Uh, they just want to discredit him. In the beginning of the book, they talk about how Paul is bold in his writing, but he's unimpressive in speaking in public. That would kind of be a hard one for me to hear if I was Paul. 
they, uh, they are challenging his personal integrity because he changed his travel plans at the end of 1 Corinthians. He says, you know, I'm going to come twice. I'm going to do two short visits, and then something happens, and he changes it, and he says, I'm going to do one long visit. And these people who are there are saying, see, he can't even trust, you can't even trust his word. So he's got to kind of, he's got to speak up for himself. He's got to defend himself in the beginning of the book. They're challenging his personal authority as someone who's been with Jesus because they're saying, hey, you haven't actually been with Jesus um, and you don't ask for money for what you do. And that kind of thought is, you know, the professional speakers that would go around on circuit in Judaism, they would be paid. And, and since Paul wasn't asking for pay, they're like, oh, you must, not, you must be an amateur. You must not be very good. And so they're, again, trying to discredit him. In addition to not being paid, um, these false teachers or super apostles are also saying that, that Paul's going around and he's going around and teaching the word of God. He is also collecting money. He's taking offerings for the poor in Jerusalem. And so what these people are saying is, Paul, you're going around and you're doing these offerings and, and you're stealing from them. You're embezzling from these people. You say it's for the poor, but it's not. And so all of these things are going on, and these people in Corinth are not in poverty. Like I said, they have more in common with the upper class of L.A. than probably you or I do. They're, they're very concerned about appearance. They want to know what's hip and trendy going on in Athens and in Greece and in Rome. Um, they want to be strong, and they, they just really simply, they want to be comfortable. Like, you are blessed by God if you have a smooth, trouble-free life. You, it would not be a stretch to say, life is supposed to be kind of picture perfect. And if it's not, then, then God isn't working in you, Paul. And so he goes on and on to kind of defend who he is in chapter 11. And then go over into the next chapter, into 12. And see, Paul has this experience 14 years before he's writing this. It says that he has a vision and he's caught up in this, it, it says this third heaven, it's like the very presence of God. And he hears things that he says are too wonderful to even, I couldn't even talk about them. He actually speaks in these first couple verses here um, in the third person because he's trying to stay so humble about it because it's so hard for him to talk about. If you've ever had amazing, something amazing happen in your life and you kept it for 14 years, that would seem odd, right? Right? That would seem odd to me. If something great happens to me, I like want to tell everyone. Now, I'm, granted, I'm a flaming extrovert, but, but Paul is pretty, I think, extroverted too. We can't exactly figure that out from the text, but here's what happens. He has this vision. He hears things that are too wonderful. And, and kind of like Jacob from the Old Testament, Jacob wrestled with God because he wanted to be blessed. And he walked away from that encounter with God with a limp. Well, Paul has this amazing encounter with God, and it says that he gets a thorn in his flesh. I'm, I'm reading now in verse 6, if you have your Bible. He's, he's kind of boasting here. He's actually bragging about his weaknesses. When these people are saying, Paul, you're, you're, not, you're not worth it. You're not a real apostle. You're not, you're not doing anything right. You're not perfect like these other people. I mean, just, just hear that for, your, for yourself. Let's jump out of 55 AD and, and jump up to today. 
How many of you hear things in your life where it's people that are trying to discredit you? Or they're upset with you? Or they're saying, you know, you, you were supposed to be here and you're here. You're down here. You're not living up to your potential. I mean, some of us get mad, right? Some of us deny it. Some of us just want to quit. But here, Paul starts bragging about his weakness. Verse 6, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more highly of me than should be warranted. But because of this surpassing great revelation, we just talked about that, I was given, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me humble. Three times I asked the Lord to take it away from me. Now, centuries, like hundreds and hundreds of years, people have been like, what exactly is this giant thorn in his side? Is that literal? Is that figurative? Is that a physical ailment? Like, did he have a speech impediment or epilepsy or malaria or migraine attacks or was it some kind of emotional thing where Paul like got super depressed or or maybe he was kind of manic or hysterical or was it some kind of thing from the outside like it was really troublesome people or or it was temptation what exactly was this and we can speculate all you want but Paul can what we gather from the text here is that it tormented him Torment is not a word I use very often in my language. Now, in my house, I hear a lot of, you're bugging me. It's usually from the third. Like, stop bugging me. Luke, you're expelled from our room. You bug us. That's what was just posted over Christmas break. Expelled. Um, E-X-S-P-E-L-L-E-D. Expelled. Um, You're bugging me, but never have my kids said, you torment me. And just think about the force of that word. Paul is saying this thing that you gave me to keep me humble torments me. In fact, I would say it's a messenger of Satan. Like, like Satan is going to use this to bring me down. Maybe you've had situations like that in your own life. You might not call him a thorn in your flesh, but it's something that so agonizes you that you think that that Satan is going to use that to just tear you down and then he'll stand over you and point his finger and laugh. And so Paul pleads with God, please take this away, please take this away. And if you really get into this, you'll find out that, that these super apostles that are opposing Paul, they're using this thorn in his flesh, whatever it was, against him. They're saying, see, like, if it was a speech impediment or if he was unimpressive with his speech, they're like, yeah, see, that, that just proves that, that you're not really with Jesus because you don't have that. So I'm not saying it's that. It's just whatever it was, the super apostles or these false teachers, these people that are against him are using that exact thing that Paul's saying, God gave this to me to keep me humble. They're using it against him. Now, Think about all the talk we talk about, like, strengths and weaknesses. Like, I love, I love to talk about that. Like, I have three strength finder books. Like, now discover your strengths and go put your strengths to work. And now there's a strength finders 2.0. You can, 
You can look up and clarify that you are an activator. You like to get things done and and you like to talk to people and and win others over. There are no strangers in your world, just friends you haven't met yet. Can you tell that's one of mine? Um, And then there's things like organizer. You like to make sure things are arranged just phenomenally. It's not me. Um, And then there's like harmony. You like to make sure everything works together. That's not me either. And, and, and the book says, like, like, try and minimize those things. Put those away and spend time over in your strengths. And Paul is saying, God, if you just take this away, like, I don't even want to boast. I just want to more effectively share your word. Sometimes I pray that about finances. Like, God, if you just, like, had me win the lottery, I would totally share it. You know, I tithe for sure. 10%, I might even go to 11 after the government takes their 42%. Um, and, and that same kind of thing, I think we do in our own life in either subtle or, or major ways. God, just minimize those things. I don't want people to see those things that I'm bad at. Or I don't want people to see those, those kind of prickles in my personality. Like, I want them to see the good parts of my person, but not the, not the parts that I don't like. When we look in the mirror, there's things that either on the outside or on the inside, we don't really want anyone to see. And we might couch it in all kinds of nice language about, like, knowing Jesus better, but deep down, we would call them a thorn in our flesh. We might even say they torment us. They shackle us from becoming who we're supposed to be. And Paul pleads with God to take it away. Not once, not twice, but three times. If you remember in the book of John, Jesus pleads with God three times to not have him go through the crucifixion. Paul's using the language to catch it back there. Three times I said, God, please take this away. And his amazing response is no. No, I'm not going to take it away because he says in verse 9, and this is like, this is like the whole point of the book, okay? In verse 9, he says, No, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough for you, Paul, because my power is made perfect. It comes to full display, full strength in your weakness. Fourteen years Paul's had to think about this. Fourteen years he hasn't said anything to anyone. He has this vision and he gets this thorn and for fourteen years he's wrestled with this. And so he is finally able to go to the next part. I will gladly boast about my weaknesses. I will be happy to tell people about them. In fact, he might even say it like this. I will look in the mirror and I will see and appreciate the handicaps I have. I will, I will consider them gifts from the Lord rather than thorns in my flesh. Because the result for Paul is that, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Verse 10, therefore I'm content. It, it says, I delight, I take joy in my weakness and, and with insults, and with troubles, and with persecutions, and with difficulties for the sake of Jesus. For whenever, 
I'm weak, then I'm strong. This, this truth just wasn't a response to Paul. It's a truth that can set us free today. Because we believe this lie that, that we have to be perfect. And so if we can't, then we, then we pursue popularity, or we pursue power, or we pursue, like, or we just give up. And we say something to the effect of, excuse my language, screw it all. I'm just not going to do it. And God says, my grace is enough for you. Like, this grace is, is a power and a love from Jesus Christ. It's a love that conquers sin and wipes out shame and heals wounds and reconciles enemies and, and replaces broken dreams and perfections with, with weakness so that it changes our heart and changes our life. And that's what Jesus is asking Paul to do, and that's what I think he's asking us to do today, to exchange perfection for grace. If you've believed this lie, if you looked in the mirror and, and something comes to you that you have to be perfect, think about it. When is God's power most likely to be seen? Is it when we're amazing? Or is it when we're weak? Weakness opens the door so that Christ's power and grace can come through. So in March of 2009, when I'm sitting on the side of a hill looking over this village, and God says, Rob, I've called you to start a church. You need to show people what it means to be released, to what it means to have hope, what it means to like, be unshackled from these things that we put our hope and our trust in. And he's like, by you waiting, it's like you're trying to take more of the power. It's like you might be tempted to steal the glory. And if you just do it, and people see how you're not perfect in gigantic ways, they'll see my glory. They'll see my power. They'll see my goodness. So you, to some extent or another, have said, okay, let's do that. And God's going to make it work because he's going to get the credit. Because Lord knows, if I try and take the credit, it won't work. And if I try and do it on my own, it won't work. And I bet that's true in your own life too. Like God wants you to come to the end of yourself so that he can begin. His divine love and power is exactly enough to meet our every need. Let me say that again, because that's kind of huge. His divine love and his divine power is exactly enough to meet your every need. So was college not the semester you wanted it to be? Last year, he's enough to meet your every need. Is your marriage not going exactly the way you want it to go? He's enough to meet your every need. Is your job not exactly the way you wanted it to be? He's enough to meet your every need. He comes, he wants you to come to the end of yourself so that you can have him show up in your life. Because Satan would love us to believe that, you know, if you just be strong, don't tell anybody about this. You know, don't, don't let anybody know that you're like having trouble, that you're struggling, that you're being weak. Just, 
Just do it on your own. Work it out. You can pull it off. In fact, go do it alone. So he can get you in the corner and he can steal and kill and destroy. And the truth is we can't do it on our own. I can't do it on my own. I have to be weak. And when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Which part of nothing don't we get? And I'm like, man, we should be in the South because I'm just going. <laughs> but, but we're not. So maybe today's the day that you're going to come to the end of yourself and admit that you can't do it alone and that Jesus is going to take over. Because good news, we weren't created to handle it alone. If you're desperate for God, it's his spirit pulling you towards him so that his power and his strength is exactly what we need for this moment. And if today's your day, then you can pray something like this. Jesus Christ, I need you. Because my best isn't good enough. God, for some of us, that's so hard to say. But it's true. My best isn't good enough. And so I finally accept that it doesn't have to be. Your life was good enough. You lived a perfect life. You died a perfect death. In fact, you're Your crucifixion, God, the cross was the ultimate power in weakness. It set us free. And so, Holy Spirit of God, I ask just as you raise Christ from the dead that you would would raise me up give me a new life. Give me a new heart. Give me a new will to follow you. Amen. If you... Pray that today in sincerity you are in Jesus' kingdom. That's a good thing. If you already love Jesus, then I have a few parting questions for you. If if you love Jesus, then will you see your weakness, your handicaps, your imperfections, as gifts from God. If you love Jesus, will you depend on him in new ways? Because deep down you know you can't do it on your own. Will you depend on him because his power is shown most fully when we're not Will you gladly boast, or maybe just admit, if gladly boasting is too hard, would you just admit your weaknesses? Maybe just those that are close to you, so that the power of Christ might dwell in you. Today, I challenge you before you go, I mean, we'll come back in a second, but before you go, to look in the mirror, maybe even during the song, you want to look in the mirror and you want to ask God, what do I need to take delight in, internally or externally, that I see as weakness or as imperfection? Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Let's pray. God, this first lie is so hard. 
Now, whether we'd say we have to be perfect, um, so many of us lived up to these false expectations. And Satan would love us to believe that we should just walk out of here defeated. But God, you came to give us victorious life, not for us to be arrogant, not for us to show off, but so that your power and your glory would be more revealed in the world and we pray it would be more revealed in our life and we realize the way to that path is weakness. And that is not a popular message, but it's the gospel truth from your word and so we will accept it and we will live it, we will share it in community so that we can try and not just try but actually succeed in living the way of Jesus. Give us what we need today as we look in the mirror. Give us courage to see it. God, before we go today, if we need to say something or admit something, I pray that we would do that today so that more of your power would dwell in us. In Jesus' name, amen.